for Tuesday, September 8th, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, in the state of Maine, four summer camps were able to stop the spread of the coronavirus by putting multiple layers of prevention in place. If you only use one or two layers, you have a chance that the holes will overlap and you will have breakthroughs and outbreaks. Dr. Laura Blaisdell, a pediatrician and medical director at Camp Winnebago in Maine, joins me to discuss what summer camps could teach us about how to get kids back to school safely. It's something she looked at in a recent report for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. It took lots of prevention measures for four summer camps in Maine to effectively stop the spread of COVID-19. That's the conclusion of a recent study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, led by Dr. Laura Blaisdell. She's a pediatrician and medical director at Camp Winnebago in Maine, and she joins me now for more. Dr. Blaisdell, thanks for talking with me. Of course. Happy to be here. Just to start, walk me through why this was something that you wanted to look at. Why focus on how camps are operating in the midst of a pandemic? Having been a camp medical director for uh, 15 years at Camp Winnebago, I've uh, been through a couple of different outbreaks. <laughs> and every year we have what we call Winnipego or Winnebola every year at camp. And uh, in 2009, we had H1N1, which was a true pandemic. And we were able to um, keep camps operating with several public health layers of interventions and actually wrote that up with the state of Maine. So when the spring of 2020 came and we saw that coronavirus might affect camps, I started thinking about um, if camps were going to be able to be opened by the Maine state government, that it would be important to understand whether these public health players could help prevent um, a disease like coronavirus, which is different from other diseases in many ways, but also um, perhaps most interestingly in the camp environment, there are kids who don't have symptoms and who have the virus. So it was at that point this spring that I started developing a research plan and uh, was able to ask three other camps to join in this effort. And we're happy and thrilled about publishing the results last week. Walk me through just kind of at the highest level what you found by looking at these camps. 
I think the most important thing to take away from what we found is that if one is diligent and consistent in using many layers of public health intervention, not just one, not just two, but many layers, that we can prevent and mitigate the spread of COVID in the camp congregate living setting. And in particular, with our groups that came to camp, which represented over a 1,000 individuals from 41 states and seven international locations. You mentioned many layers of interventions, and that's what I want to get into. I mean, if we dig into the numbers, these camps were essentially able to prevent outbreaks, like you mentioned, with people coming from all over the country, all over the world, and with about a thousand people all together in in one setting. And they did this by putting a number of interventions in place. Walk me through what some of those interventions were and maybe focus on, if you could, one or two that, that you feel and that your research team felt were most effective. Yeah, so I think one of the most important concepts was that a healthy camp begins at home. So some of the public health layers of safety began when campers and staff were at home by asking them to quarantine in their home for 10 to 14 days. And by what I mean by quarantine was was really diminishing the number of high-risk exposures that they had to individuals outside their family unit. So we also asked them to screen, to begin to screen for their, their own symptoms and temperatures prior to coming to camp. And we used a testing strategy where we tested individuals five days prior to coming to camp and five days after coming to camp to try to pick up those asymptomatic individuals. Once campers and staff came to camp, we used several layers of interventions there as well. The first, of course, most people understand masking or face covering. Most people understand physical distancing. But perhaps the most unappreciated level of uh, public health intervention, in my mind, is the concept of cohorting, which is where we put individuals in small, stable groups in the camp setting, and we allow those individuals to act functionally as families. So perhaps with your family or with my family, I don't wear a mask and I don't physically distance from my family. And so we allowed campers and the staff members that were living with campers to have those interactions without masks and physical distancing. But when they were apart from one another or interacting with people outside their family unit or their cohort, they did use those classic interventions of distancing and masking. And I think lastly would be the fact that we were able to do maximal outdoor programming. So we did a lot of programming outdoors, and we know that being outdoors helps disperse respiratory droplets that are potentially infectious. And then what's important is no one can promise a COVID-free environment these days. And so what we needed to do was to be able to rapidly identify and isolate the, any potential cases we had in camp and additionally quarantine those individuals who could have been potentially um, exposed. So those would be their family units. That's how we were able to prevent and mitigate spread in, in the camp environment. How were you screening for symptoms and, and how were campers being tested? Well, campers were screened every day by having their temperatures taken and asked for symptoms. And over the course of camp, we identified 12 individuals who had symptoms based on those daily screenings or fevers um, based on the temperatures. And we were able to isolate them, quarantine their cohorts while we tested them. So we didn't do a mass testing strategy throughout camp like we did in the beginning of camp, but we did isolated testing of symptomatic individuals within camp. And none of those 12 individuals turned out to be positive for having coronavirus. 
I'm wondering, too, about the value of cohorts. It is interesting to me that these camps had mask requirements, but that didn't mean that these campers were necessarily wearing masks all the time because they had these safe groups that they could be around. So, so talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, correct. So I think it's really important that as we go back and create environments for children, that we're thinking about creating a built environment where they don't have to wear a mask all day, every day. Because these kids were living with one another, and we can't certainly um, ask kids to have masks on when they're sleeping, that's not recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, those cohorts functioned not only to give them an opportunity to be without those public health interventions all the time, but also they function as walls around potential outbreaks so that if any one kid were to get symptoms and perhaps was positive with coronavirus, the cohort becomes a a controlling mechanism for outbreaks so that the rest of camp can go on and operate while we isolate and quarantine the individuals who could potentially be infectious. When we think about these kinds of congregant settings, especially for kids, we've got summer camps, we've got schools, which are now returning. We think about all these interventions, I think, and the the, the first thought is how disruptive is all this going to be? From your experience being at camps where these interventions were in place, how disruptive were they and were those disruptions worth it to be able to, to conduct camps? So I think kids have been silently suffering through this pandemic. You know, as a pediatrician and a mother, I've watched kids really being quite compliant and staying at home and not having those environments that they thrive and need to grow. I think that we all know that kids are are suffering in, in numerous ways because of that. So I thought that it was really important as we thought about opening summer camp for us to step up to the plate and figure out how to do it in a way that was going to be tolerable for everyone. When we talk about the disruptions, and I've said before, no one can promise a COVID-free environment. And actually, if we lean into the concept that we will have coronavirus in schools or camps or colleges, then we begin to think about how we're going to manage the disruptions in a way that continues the program and that continues the life of campers or students. So when we did have disruptions at camp and we needed to isolate an individual, we planned to have a shadow camp. For those individuals, certainly the, the, the case had to have a, a shadow camp that was an N of one, but for those uh, five to 20 kids who were quarantining but healthy, we created a, a shadow camp or a COVID camp. So those individuals had their own programming. That might be akin to switching kids to remote learning. I think we need to be nimble and flexible in the programming to plan for having these disruptions as, as the part of the new norm until we can have enough community immunity or a vaccine to prevent spread and infection. There's a lot of attention right now on how we get kids back into classrooms, how colleges get kids back on campus. And, you know, a study like this is a great example of, you know, in a, in a limited, very controlled setting, how you can put interventions in place to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. But what are some limitations that this study has things that you think you, you could have looked at a little deeper? And, and how do those limitations maybe affect the how translatable what y'all did uh, could be to, to other settings? I think what you're asking is, how does this apply from camps and across into the school setting? And I think, while they're not the same, the concept of a bubble is perhaps the one thing that differentiates the overnight camp experience and the you know, day camp or the day school experience. 
And while we were able to create a bubble at camp, so to speak, meaning that we had very little transients in and out of our community, although we did have some, our maintenance staff, our kitchen staff, our office staff, we were able to put additional layers of protection around those individuals that decreased the, the risk of popping our bubble. I think when we think about schools, we can learn some things from the study, even though it was in a highly con controlled congregate setting. One thing about a congregate setting is in living settings, we know that disease can spread very quickly, and it can certainly in school settings as well. But when we think about what is the bubble in a school setting, it's the community that the students are, are living in. It's the families that people are going home to at night. And if we can really create a culture of compliance both within the school and within the community and those families that students are going home, we have a better chance of using that layer of intervention as well. And by community, the culture of compliance, I mean, perhaps this isn't the year to attend large events. So I think that that is one limitation. I think also, you know, we did not test every individual at the end of camp. And one of the reasons is because we know that tests are functioning with variable validity and we're seeing false positives in testing. So we are, we're not 100% certain that nobody had coronavirus, but our camps did run for four to six weeks. And so I think we would have, we feel confident that we would have seen symptoms in some of our older individuals and staff members in our camp setting if we did have coronavirus. Summer camps have been the focus of a few different uh, reports from CDC over the summer. One of them, looking at a camp uh, here in Georgia, found that that camp had to shut down within the period of fewer than two weeks because they were not implementing uh, certain measures. The one the CDC really focused on in this report was the lack of, of face masks. So maybe if you could, because you actually mentioned that Georgia camp in your report, contrast the two for me if, if, if you could. Is it as simple as... Georgia's camp didn't have face masks, and that's why things fell apart? I don't think that it is as simple as that. We do have those stories of camps like the one in Georgia that were unable to pursue the layering that we did in our study. When someone asks me about the failure of any camp, my question is, what didn't you do? Because we know each of these layers is like a layer of Swiss cheese. It has a hole in it. Um, it has a limitation in it. Masking has a limitation. Distancing has limitations. So it is only through the layering of all of these layers of Swiss cheese that we close up the holes. If you only use one or two layers, you have a chance that the holes will overlap and you will have breakthroughs and outbreaks. It is not as simple as saying they did not mask and we did. I think what they didn't do was overlay many multiple layers of prevention, and that is what we did, and we're able to achieve success because of it. This report says, yes, it is possible to put interventions in place, very basic interventions, to prevent the spread of this highly infectious disease. I think another way to look at it is, the links that these camps really had to go to to keep coronavirus from spreading there, links that I think very fairly would be very hard for a bunch of other congregate settings where kids are, namely schools, to put in place. So how do you think about that? Because for me, I read the report and thought, oh, this it was great for these camps, but there's no way that schools are going to be able to do all these things. I think that when we put our minds to opening any institution for children, it's not hard. Yes, I spent many, many hours planning how to open camp this summer. But 
putting these layers into place is possible. And so my challenge to um, communities that serve children is to think about it's not going to look the same, it's going to be different, but how can we do it? Not that we can't, how can we? And I think that this criticisms of the nature of overnight camps versus any other setting that children are in, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is what do we need to do for the health and well-being of our children? And if it is, planning differently, creating programming differently, thinking about outdoor schools, thinking about cohorting our kids in different ways to keep them safe, asking them to wear masks. This is all, these are all things that we can do. It's possible to do, and we just need to think differently about it. I have to imagine that this is also, to a certain degree, a study of what privilege can get you. I mean, we've seen other instances of bubbles, the the NBA bubble very notably, where you have a sports league that, you know, with millions and millions of, of dollars, with so many resources, and they have been able to function. Is that also happening here to a certain degree, places with privilege, with the resources to be able to put these interventions in place are going to be able to provide much more normal experiences for kids than institutions that don't have those resources? I think that's a valid question. And certainly those institutions who have the time and the money to create the plans are those institutions that are faring better as they plan and create alternative strategies. I think remote learning is something that's exceedingly expensive to employ uh, for, for students. And we know that we haven't invested what we need to invest in our school systems to allow them to have this sort of nimbleness and um, ability to plan. I do think it's a valid point, and I think what I have said to lots of individuals is this might not be the year for everybody to be in person. This is an incredibly difficult pandemic that we're going through, and we're all making our own choices about our safety tolerance and our uncertainty tolerance. So I think that what this study does show is that when one dedicates themselves to employing these public health layers, many of which are possible to employ, that you can decrease the spread of coronavirus. And as I've watched public schools struggle without any resources to employ uh, these plans, I've been I've been increasingly disheartened about um, how we've let schools down in supporting them. Dr. Laura Blaisdell is a pediatrician and medical director at Camp Winnebago in Maine. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org coronavirus. If you have it recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio. 
just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.